A reading from Isaiah. The Lord has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The word of the Lord. A reading from Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, being the form of a slave, being born in human kindness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, the God, of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a lamb of your own fold, a sheep of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This reading from Philippians we get only once a year, always on Palm Sunday, and it is what scholars believe to be the oldest part of our New Testament. You can't tell from the reading, but it's a hymn, a hymn written maybe within the first eight years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And like most parts of uh, the Greek New Testament, it's got one of those magic words that you sometimes hear in church. You know, if you've been going to church a long time, you hear the word agape, that word unrequited, never-ending love, right? Unconditional love. And this word here in Philippians is the word kenosis, which is to make yourself empty. Empty of what? This, I think, this particular concept is the frame for Holy Week. Jesus emptying himself and of what, really, I think the best way to say is by telling you about some fish. So, I spent a few summers living in Alaska and beyond just the scenery and the majesty, there's really fewer idiosyncrasies in nature that are quite as unique as salmon. Salmon are born in tiny little glacial-fed pools. And they lay their eggs 3,000 eggs at a time. If you've ever seen them, they, they come together in something called the big skein. You can physically pick up the skein and all 3,000 eggs sort of stick there. They lay these eggs and rocks sort of cover them up a little bit. They're at the bottom of these crystal clear waters. I mean, you can physically look down and see them even at 3 in the morning if it's the summer. 
the eggs, they, like most eggs, they, they hatch and they first, they look kind of like minnows, but really it's an eye. It's called an alevin. It's just the eye of the fish with a little tail. And sure enough, they swim around and they observe. Then, you know, within about six months, those little eyes have grown up to be the size of your pinky and they're called fingerlings. And there's about 300 of them left. They grow and grow until they're the size of your hand. And about two years later, there's 125 of the 3,000 left and a switch flicks in their brain. And when that switch is thrown, they leave that glacially fed pool and they get into one of these large, enormous rivers that flows ultimately to the sea. Along the way, of course, there's, there's predators that get some. And the biggest surprise for them is when they get to the ocean, they now have to transition from breathing fresh water to salt water. A transition that's difficult. In fact, many of them go belly up. And that's when the birds are waiting to really strike. They spend about a year and a half there in the Gulf of the Bay, growing big enough, getting accustomed to salt water. By now, maybe they're, they're the length from your, your fingertip to your um, elbow, which in Bible speak, they're a cubit long. And then, big enough, strong enough, they enter in what are called gyres in the ocean. These are enormous circular currents, so big, in fact, that all the fish in Alaska will swim by all the fish in Japan. And when they get in these big things, um, they'll probably swim 24,000 miles over the next two or three years. Some point in that swim, there's a switch that flicks back in their brain. This is still mysterious even to science, what it is that does it. But the switch flicks in their brain, and now they swim back to Alaska, and not just to uh, that huge, huge state, right, that's more than twice as big as Texas. They swam to exactly the same river they swam down, even though adjacent rivers might only differ in mineral content by one part per billion. This time, when they get to the river, and, and maybe, maybe 15 have made it, maybe, of course you realize, They'll be swimming upstream against currents that are strong enough to, an, uh, to knock over an adult at two and a half feet deep. And maybe you've seen this on BBC or Discovery. The fish will literally swim up waterfalls just by smacking the water with their tail. It's tremendous to behold. Um, now, though, see, they're doing the transition backward. Now they've become used to drinking this salt water, and they're swimming in fresh water. It's a transition that ultimately they won't make again. To prepare themselves for the journey, they cover themselves with slime. They get really greasy. And as that slime starts to wash off of them, because the water that really should be fresh is now toxic to them, they undergo an amazing metamorphosis. A considerably hydrodynamic silver fish becomes fire engine red. Its head starts to become bright green. Right behind its head, that once hydrodynamic fish that really is, is an amazing work of machinery, grows a big hump on its back. The jaws that used to have very small, small teeth now grow teeth 
two, three inches long randomly that kind of look like cactus spines, thorns on a date palm, if you have one of those in your yard, they're yellow. The fish become sort of living dead, zombies on this upwater journey. And when they make it back to the same pool, and by the way, two of the 3,000 make it on average, because of course along the way, there's bears trying to eat them, and bald eagles, and fisherwomen and fishermen trying to catch and eat them as well. Two make it back, they lay their eggs, and the next generation begins again. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> you may be unconvinced it does when I'm done, although, uh, in my head, that is exactly the story of Jesus and the story we're invited to walk, particularly this week, because after all, Jesus was born in a really small pond, grew up in a village called Nazareth, maybe 75 residents, and as with most children, of course, he was sort of a moving around eye, watching his parents and the religious leaders of his day so that he knew what to do. He was carried along by the tides of Judaism and work and did his time in the sea until one day a switch flicked in his brain. We think we know when that switch was. It was John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And when that switch flicked, Jesus then began at least a three-year swim, but particularly a week-long one against some of the currents that had carried him to adulthood. Against. Because he said things like, human beings were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for human beings. By saying things like, when your donkey falls into a well on the Sabbath, you pull it out. It's better to break a rule so that someone can live than respect a rule and have others die. By doing things like associating with women and even touching them, touching dead bodies and corpses so that he could bring them new life by healing on the Sabbath. Of course, by now, most of us have decided all that's great. But at the time of Jesus, there were some pretty angry people to hear their culture being upended so. What did they do? Well, all week long, there were scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, trying to hook Jesus by asking him questions like, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? There were Roman soldiers looking to stop him from swimming. Of course, at the end of the week, a small group of disciples hear and internalize his message and take it forward. You see, the thing that's different about Jesus and the fish, particularly this week, is that the fish show us what is natural. It is so natural for me when I think I'm swimming against a cultural influence that separates me and others from the love of God to get tired. Tired to the point that I often really like to grow a self-righteous hump on my back. Tired and righteously angry, I'd argue, enough to grow yellow, spiny 
nasty teeth. Tired to the point, after all, I'm doing this for your good. (laughs) To see my colors change, even as I'm swimming this journey I thought God was asking me to do. If you have ever parented children or been children of parents, you know what this swim is like. Remember that first semester you went away to college and you came back and said, look at the new me, and your parents said, no, honey, (laughs) no. (laughs) Yeah. And if you were like I, you did the futile swim of saying, I'll prove it to you. Why are you getting in my way? I'm doing this for the better. That is natural, says the fish. It is natural for us in the swim towards God's imagination, frankly, to become exhausted and to change our colors and to grow a hump in our back. That's natural. Follow Jesus each day this week is he does something supernatural. Day after day, when the hooks and the barbs and the bears and the soldiers come to bait him and entrap him, he continues swimming upstream, but he does not change his colors. He does not grow a self-righteous hump on his back and he does not grow teeth. Instead, on Friday, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. It is supernatural to live outside of our reptilian brains that ask us in moments of fatigue to fight, flight, or flee. That's supernatural. That's the way Jesus swims this week. I'm convinced that's the way Jesus is asking us to swim, not just this week, but to swim this path of discipleship. And as the moments come of fatigue and exhaustion, that's why we're called back to the Lord's table to be nourished by the Eucharist, to be nourished by one another for each of our own holy weeks, because it's not just this one each of our own holy weeks, so that we can stay true to the call God has given us even as we resist the powers and principalities and forces that would separate us and others from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Until, not only are there others to carry on this swim against the currents, but until enough of us swim this way so that the currents themselves are changed and flow with justice and flow with God's imagination until the world around us cannot help but get swept up in this swim that God has set before us. Let's swim with Christ and one another in this way, this week, and it will be holy.